heart has latched on to a thing other than the Lord, leading you to dismiss the, the moral good, right? What is it in our own heart that, that we're so attached to that we're quick to sort of dismiss little sins or make moral exceptions and justify things away or to ignore the spiritual better thing that is being offered of us and instead wallow and indulge in the fleshly muck? I wonder what that is for, for us. Because impurities of the heart cause spiritual blindness. This is why Jesus is after the heart. We say it all, every, every, every week. We didn't talk about offering today, but usually we give a quick spiel, right? And we say, hey, we're not going to be passing a basket here at the journey, but we still believe in, in, in worshiping through giving. Well, what we don't say is, hey, the, the Lord really needs your money, and so do we, so please give, because it's not true. God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's laughable to think that he needs something from you. He wouldn't be God, right? If he needed you to take care of him, he wouldn't be God, amen? So why does God want our money? Well, he doesn't. What do we say every week? He wants our heart. Right? And he, knows he knows they're closely attached. He knows it's easy for us to latch on to our finances, to our treasure, if you will, and to start, have secure, start to feel like we're secure in what we can gain, and, we, and then we really don't need him. Right? As the Proverbs say, you know, like, don't let me become too rich, though I don't think, that I, I'll think I don't need you, Lord, but don't let me become so poor that I curse you. Like, there's, a, there's a danger to money that can lead us to a spiritual blindness, and, and, and Jesus is after our hearts. He's not after just external conformity, right? Jesus would not be content with a, with a society or a culture where there's, where there's no adultery. It's not good enough for him. It's why he goes on to say, yeah, that, that's good and right. You're not supposed to commit adultery, but, but you also, like, let me tell you, if you're just having all those thoughts in your heart, the error is already there. The impurity is already there, right? To, to have that heart latched onto something and entertaining something in the darkness or in the quietness is the danger, and it is indeed a sign of the impurity, and it will cause spiritual blindness. It will cause us to not live rightly. So this is why Jesus is after the heart. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is what it's talking about, remember? He's got this audience. It's sandwiched between a declaration that he's, he's brought the kingdom, he, and he's preaching that the kingdom is here, and he's, perf he's performing miracles and signs in such a way that displays the power of the kingdom. And in the middle of that, right, he teaches this sermon. And, and, and here he's talking about this is what kingdom people look like. What kind of people are in the kingdom of God? What do his disciples look like? And here he says, the pure in heart are the ones who are blessed. The only ones who are blessed is the implication there. The only ones who are happy are the pure in heart, for they will be given the supreme award of seeing God. So as we looked at last week, the Beatitudes of action uh, sort of flow out. We got this chart here. The, the Beatitudes of action on the right side flow out. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> they flow out of the, the Beatitudes of need Right, And so the attitudes of need lead us to this place of emptiness, and then through the center of, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it leads us to these beatitudes of action. And we looked at being merciful last week. Today, we're talking about being pure at heart. Because, And here's why. The disciple who has mourned his or her sin will end up being pure in heart. Because if a disciple sees his sin, when we see our sin, it, it, and even more than that, when we see our affection for our sin, 
right? Have you been there? Has, has the Lord taken you to that place where not just, not only do you just see that you are a sinner, but you start to see back behind the, the layers of your heart that not only are you a sinner, but you actually really like that sin. You have affection for it. You're drawn to it, right? When we see that and then we weep over it, we're, we're mourning over it, it leads us to this great impulse to root out sin, right? And to become pure and to therefore long to see God. So it's really likely that Jesus' reference here to, to being pure at heart comes from the famous rhetorical uh, answer to the questions of Psalm 24. Perhaps you've heard this psalm. Uh, it, there's been other songs written um, in, in recent years from it. But Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The people of Israel had a, a, a better grasp. I don't know if it was a good grasp, but a better grasp on the holiness of God. They had seen him work in such a way that they knew he was holy. They knew he was not to be trifled with. They knew that he was in a different place of righteousness and holiness than they were. They had seen brothers and sisters be stoned to death for not taking the holiness of God seriously. They had seen God come down and consume people for, for not taking his holiness seriously. So they, they had a grasp of that. And so this psalm comes out of, well, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can go and stand in his holy place? And verse four says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing of the Lord. The, the, the beatitude's in there, right? You see that he will receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So you can see what David means by a pure heart in the phrases that follow it. He says a pure heart is a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood, right? It's not deceitful. It's painstakingly truthful and free of deceitfulness. Okay, so why does he bring that up? Well, deceit is what you do when you have a will for two different things, okay? When I say will, I'm talking about like our desire, our compulsion toward, right? So when we have a will toward two things, not one thing, because as we're gonna see, a pure heart can be defined by having a singular will or a singular desire, a singular drive for the glory of the Lord. But when we have this, this duplicitous, this, this dual heart, double-minded as the New Testament will call it, when we have that, that leads to deceit. Because you will will to do one thing, and you will will that people think you're doing another. Anybody else struggle? Like you, you're wanting to do one thing, but you're, you're really hoping that everybody else thinks you're wanting to do another thing. You will to even feel one thing, but you will that people would think that you're feeling another thing. That is impurity of heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing, namely, is to seek the face of the Lord. I took that from an article from John Piper. That, that, that is purity of heart, right? That we don't have this dual will going on where we're, we're really wanting this thing inside of us. If you could, like, man, what a haunting thought. I mean, we've, you've heard the illustration perhaps, like if, if somebody just was going to broadcast upon this screen the thoughts of your mind in your darkest places, how horrifying is that, right? How horrifying is that? The pure heart is where we come to this place where there's not, a con, there's, not a, there's not a tension and a contrast and a pull between what we actually want to do and what we want people to think that we want to do. 
to seek the face of the Lord. That is purity of heart. And this is, honestly, if you think about it, this has been the longing of every human born since the fall, is to seek the face of the Lord. Now, we, we aim that desire. That's what we're longing for. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Ecclesiastes 3.18 says that God placed eternity in the heart of man, and that leads us to try to get eternity. That leads us to thirst for living water. That leads us to desire for God. Whether we know anything about God or not, we're longing for that, right? So it leads us to try to get that out of relationships, try to get that out of careers, try to get that out of our kids, try to get that out of our homes, try to get that out of our success, right? And on and on and on we go. And in reality, what everybody is seeking, I think C.S. Lewis said, everybody who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually seeking the face of the Lord, right? That's a paraphrase, but he's saying when, when, when men are seeking such even distorted sins as that, what we're really longing for is God himself. Okay, so since the fall, we've all been longing for that, right? It's, it's at the root of, of every issue, right? Um, that we were made to be in the presence of God right? That there in the garden, they were enjoying his being and the gifts that he had given him, right? That, that was, that's where we belong, enjoying God and rightly enjoying the gifts that he has given us, which also lead us to enjoy him, right? And, but it gets twisted. The moment that Eve and Adam take the fruit, the heart becomes tainted, this impurity sets in, desires become twisted, and the heart is no longer pure, it's no longer pure in seeking the face of the Lord. Instead, the heart began to desire something other than the Lord, right? Their own glory. And we have followed suit, right? From that moment in the garden, their hearts began to seek their own glory. That's what led them to take the fruit and believe the lie. And we have all been born into that world where we are also seeking our own glory, seeking our own satisfaction apart from God. So this has been the root of every issue since. And, but here's the, here's the thing, it's also been at the heart of every movement of God in salvation history throughout the Old Testament, right? That God has been coming to address this issue. That God has never just been about external conformity. He's never just been about, hey, will you people just follow these rules? God has always been coming for the hearts of his people. We see this in the Old Testament as the prophets, they look forward to the time when God would give his people the clean hearts that are required in Psalm 24, Right? We see this where they look forward to the time when God would do a work so great that, that no man has ever seen before and what he would be doing was giving his people a heart that is pure, that allows them to ascend the hill into his presence. We see this in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Who's the active agent in this? This, this cleansing. This, this becoming clean. Who's the active force at work? It's the Lord. It's, it's God saying, I will do this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah, in a similar passage in, in Jeremiah 31, says that when, when he gives us that new heart, that new covenant, he's going to give us a heart that has the law written on it. Meaning that those desires that, that drive us to these other places are going to be replaced with this desire that drives us to the Lord. That's what God promises to do, even in the Old Testament. It's not just this external conformity. Please obey the Ten Commandments, you imbeciles. That's not the heart of God. These will lead you to life, is what the heart of God says. But he knows 
He knows that 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 won't be sufficient. He knows that a heart transplant will be required. He knows that his people will will have to be born again. And so he sets in motion a plan to do just that. And that is what we're about to celebrate in Advent. But Jesus shows up. And, and this is even more urgent in Jesus' day because the Pharisees have, begot, have gotten really, really good, in fact, professional-level good at externalizing. The Pharisees have gotten really, really good at looking good on the outside. And that double-minded thing where they want people to think this about them, and in reality, they're really evil inside, they have mastered that. They are pro-level, next-level varsity players. These guys have taken the 600-something laws from the Old Testament and added to it. Oh yeah? We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? Well, I'll I'll back that up. I won't even ride my donkey on the Sabbath. I won't even cook. I won't even do this, right? And they just keep going on and on because they they have gotten really good at putting out this, this outward appearance. And Jesus says, woe to you, Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is not social media hiding behind a computer screen. Jesus is face to face with these guys. He says, woe to you hypocrites, calls them out. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, he wants to be really clear, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear to be beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus has no interest in entertaining that religious nonsense. He was harsh with those religious people. Harsh. Just quick verses. He called them hypocrites twice. He called them root of vipers. That doesn't have a cultural like punch that it does, like it does for them, that it, it, it doesn't carry that for us. But Jesus is like, He's, he's calling them out. He's calling them names. He's, 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 but why? Because he wants to be clear. You are, are messing it up for yourselves, but you're also leading droves of people astray. So Jesus is firm and combative and strong with the religious people. And he's kind and embracing and meek to those that the religious people have written off. To those people who are already poor in spirit, who know they have nothing to stand before God, Jesus is kind to them. But when it comes to the people who have put on this external appearance, this, pla- this, this fake plastic smile, right? Put on our nice clothes, go to church, right? Tell the kids to shut up. Hope that nobody says anything about what's really happening at home. Hope that nobody really brings it up. Hope the preacher doesn't preach too hard and make your wife speak up and say what's really going on, right? That kind of nonsense, Jesus has no tolerance for that. Hypocrites, he says. Hypocrites. You're acting like everything's good. Meanwhile, your heart's dark and evil and wicked. Hypocrites, he says. You see, the Jewish traditions of that day were really concerned about external and ritual purity. Jesus taught that purity of heart is the most important thing. It's not a new idea from Jesus. Again, we see, you know, we, we, we point back to the, the, the passage we already referenced from David. Um, <clears throat> David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16. God's looking at the heart of man. So outward appearance, what a person looks like, how religious they look, has, has zero bearing on whether or not they will actually faithfully obey the Lord. For a person's actions flow from the heart. Lust begins in the heart. 
the center of a person's will and identity. It's, it's not enough to maintain physical purity alone. One must also guard against engaging mentally in an act of unfaithfulness. This is what Jesus says, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, a person who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. What is Jesus doing there? He's not adding to the Old Testament, but he's correctly interpreting it. You hear that? When Jesus does that, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He says the same thing with, with, with murder, right? You've heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. I tell you, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother because you've already sinned in your heart, right? And he goes on. And it looks like he's just raising the bar or tightening the screws. But what he's actually doing, not adding to the Old Testament, but correctly interpreting the Old Testament, correctly interpreting the heart of God. Because even the Ten Commandments that God had, had given required purity of heart. So we see that. Jesus' aim is to come for our hearts. And then we also see that what he aims to accomplish with his coming is purity. Okay? It's probably not all that shocking that Jesus is coming for your, for your heart. That, that's just pretty standard church conversation. But what's he going to do with that heart? He's going to make it pure. That's what he promises to do. He's going to make it pure. Well, like, that's this really hard. That's like... That's hard to even fathom, isn't it? William Barclay tells us that that Greek word there, it was also used to describe clear water or metals without alloy or sometimes grain that had been winnowed and sometimes feelings that are unmixed, right? As it's used in our text, it carries the idea of being free from every taint of evil, that that's what God intends to do with us. This is what our Lord requires to see him, okay? That's what it's going to, to require, to see him. Those who are pure in heart will see God. To experience the kingdom, we have to be pure in heart. And yet, as we see this truth, we're also confronted with the impossibility of this. Anybody else, you're, you're seeing, I don't qualify. I don't have it within me. We're brought face to face with the reality that actually nobody qualifies. No one meets the requirements for this. There's a 19th century Russian novelist that says it this way. I think he kind of speaks for us all. He says, I don't, know the heart of a, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Amen? We don't know what the heart of those really, really evil, we don't know what the heart of the, of the Hitlers, the Stalins, and the really, really dark, the, the, the serial murders, the people who, who go to places that we, we can't even fathom that. But we don't have to. We simply look at our own hearts and we see that we're not meeting the standard that God is going to require to be in his presence, to see him. It's impossible. It's impossible. But that actually takes us back to Jesus' reply in Matthew 19. Because when they're talking about the rich man getting into heaven, Jesus is saying, hey, it's really not, really not possible. If he's still in love with his money, it ain't going to happen. And the disciples, they hear this, and Jesus is talking about the eye of camel, and they said, well, and it says, Matthew 8, 19, 25 and 26, says that they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who, who then can be saved? Right? This is the question that Jesus' teaching brings them to. It's like, uh, Jesus, like, who makes this cut then? Who gets in? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God was rich in mercy. Like Titus 2, 
says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We're zealous for good works. You remember back to that Ezekiel text? God is saying, I am going to cleanse my people. I am going to wash them free of all their impurities, all of their whoring themselves out to idols. I am going to wash them clean. I'm going to make them new. The Lord is the active agent in that. He is the one who, who purifies us. He is the one who gives us that pure heart. And the response of our hearts to, to God's act of, of, of creating that in us, that, that, that act of being born again, what, what we do in response to that is to have a, a purified heart driven by faith that is singularly focused on bringing glory to him, on, on seeing him as he truly is, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Acts 15.9 says that God made no distinction between us and them, but purified their hearts by faith. So just need to be clear. This is not a checklist of things, as Derek pointed out, and we've said every week. You don't do these things and then you get accepted by God. No, you, you come to God. Part of what this series may do and, and this teaching did for a lot of people as they heard it from Jesus the first time is help them realize they don't belong in the presence of God. They can't climb the mountain. They don't have the gear. They don't have the ability. They're hopeless. And indeed, that's where we have to get. That's where we have to get if we're going to be in a place where we can actually receive the gospel because the way that we are cleansed, the way that we are made pure it's through faith. Through faith alone, through grace alone. It's not of our own doing. Romans 6, 17 but says, but thanks be to God, though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient, where? From the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. Do you know that that's possible? Not only possible, but that's the, the, the emphasis, that's the direction, that's what God intends to do, that you would become obedient from the heart? Y'all remember that song we sang years, years, years and years ago? I think Hillsong wrote it, Inside Out. Everlasting. I'm not going to sing. But that's the idea, is that from the inside out, we are transformed. God is the one who purifies the heart. He takes out that heart of, flesh, heart of stone, he says, and puts in a heart of flesh. And in that heart of flesh is new desires. His law is written there. That's what begins to grow out of that, the soil that's in that new heart. It's not perfect all at once, but those desires are stronger. They, they keep pushing for Jesus. They keep pushing. They keep hungering for, for righteousness, right, and his holiness. And, and as that happens, we keep repenting. We keep mourning. We keep confessing our poverty of spirit, and we keep growing in our pure hearts. And, and as a result, we also keep growing in our ability to see God, because God is the one who purifies the heart. The instrument which, which he does it is faith. Therefore, when we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, as Proverbs 3, 5 says, when we will this one thing, right, when we're fully in with him, we will see God. You'll see God. Man, I'm going to be honest. This made me tremble, trying to put language to communicate what it means to see God. What it means and why you should long for it. Like, it, like to try to put words to that, like 
to, to convince you that this is more than just a religious platitude, right? That, that, that to, to put language in a place to communicate the ultimate, the highest good to which we can hope or aspire is to see God. That when we see God, to see God is to see all of our longings, our purpose, our desires, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, all of it consummated at once, right? All that we, we've ever wondered, what, like it just in a moment, when you see Anybody who's confronted with just a glimpse of the glory of God. That could just be the glow coming off of Moses' face when he comes down the mountain, makes people immediately hit their face. It's Isaiah in the throne room. It's, it's Mary and Joseph when, they, when encountered by the angel. What do they do? They, they humble themselves. They bow down because just that afterglow from the beings that have been in the presence of God causes us to instantly have a reality of, oh my gosh, this is where things belong. God is here and I am here. And without his mercy, I will be crushed, I will be consumed, right? To see God and then to be welcomed into his presence is such an overwhelming promise, an overwhelming invitation that the pure in heart will see God is something that, that, that we should never get over, that we should always look forward to, that we should be longing for. First John says that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay? So John's saying, listen, the reason the world doesn't know us, because they didn't know Jesus. When they know Jesus, they'll know us, right? But but here's the deal. He says, what we're gonna be, we're not there yet. Like what we will be has not yet appeared, but when we know but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This, this beatitude tells us that the purer that our hearts become, the more we will see God even in this life. You remember, almost all these Beatitudes have a present promise and a future full, uh, full fulfillment, right? That we will get glimpses, we will get uh, foreshadowings, we will get taste of these things, but one day it will be fully consummated, right? So it's always with the present and the future in view, these Beatitudes. And, but it's not just that we'll see God on that day. That is a glorious thing. But even now, in the moment, like the more our hearts are focused on God, absorbed with him, concentrated on his being, freed from distraction, sincere, and single in our motivation, the more we will see him. And as our hearts become pure, the more the word lives and more creation speaks, right? The more our hearts get closer to God, the more we get out of this. The more we, 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 we are stirred by our conversation with God through reading scripture, the more that the creation screams out to us. And then even adverse circumstances of life, of suffering and struggle, sharpen our vision of God. See, this is the invitation. It's not just, hey, pray this prayer and hold on to that ticket until you get to heaven and then you'll see God. In the meantime, kind of do the best you can. It's not the call of the gospel. It's not the offer of the gospel. The offer is come see God now. Let him purify your heart. Be pure in heart and you will see him increasing measure, right? The seeing is now and in the future, but it's also a continuous, right? The more that we have purity of heart, the more we see him in every circumstance. So let's, uh, as we wrap up, I want you to think about it this way. 
the pure in heart are able to enjoy our families in a different way. Right? Have, you, have you noticed this on this side of being a Christian where you just have these moments where you stop and watch your, your family, whether that's spouse, whether it's mom, dad, kids, loved ones, whatever it looks like, community group, and you just have these moments of, oh my gosh, these are my people, right? And, and you just have this moment of gratitude. We're coming up on Thanksgiving, right? Thankfulness, right? Where we, we're just blessed, right? Where we're, see, we're able to see God's goodness in the people around us. That's a gift of the pure in heart, right? The pure in heart are able to see his beauty in creation. I was just talking to my, my middle daughter yesterday about, about the leaves, about the beauty of the leaves right now. Men are pretty, aren't they? I didn't think we were going to get a pretty fall. I thought they were just going to turn brown and dark. But no, it's, it's, it's pretty right now. It's, it's beautiful. And I said, you realize God didn't have to do that, right? He didn't have to make the leaves turn colors. He didn't have to make them be gorgeous. They could have just turned brown, fell off, and died. But he did. The pleasure in life, we see God in it. You realize he didn't have to make food taste good. You know that, right? He could have given us sustenance without flavor. Man, he's given us some good food, hasn't he? It's incredible. It, it, the gifts, same thing with sex, right? Reproduction could have happened without pleasure. You realize that, right? He could have got that accomplished without pleasure, but no, he chooses to make that enjoyable. We see his goodness in that. We see him in that. The world distorts that in all sorts of wicked ways. And some of you have a really hard time seeing God in that pleasure in particular. Because somebody's taken that from you. Or because of what you've spent years in the gutter with that. So that needs to be redeemed in you fully. But that's what God offers to us. Like, he is not ashamed of that good gift. We see God in the pleasures of life. That's a gift of the pure in heart. We're able to say, man, this is a blessing. This is a divine gift given to us out of love. It's, this is God saying, here, enjoy. I made this for you. The steak this bacon. Bacon makes everything better. You get some bacon, you praise God, right? Thank you for making bacon. I'm not even kidding. Like, it's, it's funny, but for real, praise God for bacon. And then, even in the brokenness, pure in heart are able to see God. Even in the messiness of life, when we're pure in heart, we see that brokenness as an invitation to join God's redemptive work. Right? When we see families broken, when we see people addicted, when we see kids abused and neglected, and we grieve, to be sure we should grieve. We've covered that in previous Beatitudes. But then his mercy living in us, the mercy that was shown to us, compels us to do something about it, and we find ourselves stepping toward them, and there we find ourselves right where God is at work. The pure in heart see God even in the brokenness because God is moving toward the brokenness to make it right. That's Jesus. The religious people did not get him. They did not understand why he's going to those people. Over and over and over again, they would say, does he not know who they are? Does he not know what they've done? Does he not know she's a prostitute? Does it, do they not know he's a tax collector? Do they not know he's a leper? Jesus says, yeah, I know. And I haven't come to seek and to save the, the well. 
It's not those who are well who need a doctor. Those who are sick. I've come to seek and save the lost. So we become his people, and we see the brokenness, right? And, and, and we mourn it. And then we're compelled by his mercy within us to want to do something about it. And then when we step in, we find ourselves right there where God is at work. I think it's Henry Blackaby years ago in Experiencing God says, find where God's at work and join him there. Newsflash. He's at work where the broken people are. That's not going to be a clean. <laughs> you start looking for him and the, the clean, put together people, you ain't, you're not finding him. You may find something else. You may find self-righteousness. You may find a club. But you're not going to find God. Where are you going to find God? In the mess. Making it right. Making all things new. Working in a spirit. and Ministering. Reconciling the broken world to himself. We as the pure in heart see God even in the brokenness of this world. We see God. Instead of seeing despair, we see creation longing and groaning, as Romans 8 says, in labor pains with anticipation for the coming of the one who will make it right. We see that, and then we get to look at the broken world and say, yes, this is awful, but he's coming, and you can know him. He's coming, and, and you can know him, and we start to, to try to pull people onto the ship with us, pull people into the kingdom with us, because yes, this is a mess, but he's coming, and you can know him. And when we're doing that kind of work, we're seeing God all over the place. Some of you don't see God because you're not following and serving him in the way that he's called you to follow and serve him. Your life is way too tame. Your life is way too low risk. Your life is way too comfortable. The New Testament speaks of the consummation of, of Christ's kingship at his return. It uses the word revelation, which is at its root, apocalypse. That's gotten twisted into all kinds of weird stuff. But what it means is the unveiling. The unveiling, that, that at this point, when that end comes, what we are longing for, the day that we're looking ahead to is not this day of scary, what's going to happen with the monsters and the heads and the horns and the lady and the, all that. No, no, what we're longing for is the day when we see Jesus, amen? And it, he will be unveiled in such a way that it will all make sense. At this point, Christ will be made manifest. He will appear in his full glory. And when the Bible speaks about seeing him again, we're told that, that when he appears in this unveiling, we will see him. And that every eye will behold him. So the force of these passages should direct our attention to the hope, as it said in 1 John, of seeing Christ in his full glory. Revelation 22, beautiful passage. Verses one through five says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. This is, this is what we're headed toward. Flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation's Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what the pure in heart are longing for is that day. All right, we need to examine ourselves. These Beatitudes serve as sort of this, this test, if you will, 
Is this in you? Okay. You're part of the kingdom of God. Cultivate it. Lean into it. If it's not, you need to examine yourself. So some of you, right, like some of you are, have treated God like the per- You ever been in, introduced to somebody and, and as you're trying to tell them about yourself, you can tell that they're looking around the room at other things and they're not really listening to you? It's frustrating, isn't it? Don't be that person, just as a quick side note. Have you been there? You don't feel very valued in that moment, do you, right? The person's just looking around. The other, like they're, they're clearly not paying attention to you. They're really not interested in you, right? They only see us as objects or a means to an end. Maybe they have to have this conversation or whatever. A lot of us have treated God that way, right? That, yeah, we want the God thing. We, we know we have to have it. Otherwise, we'll go to hell. But we're, we're not really interested in him. We're not really longing for him. We're not really running after him. If that's you, if that, if that sobers you and sort of rattles you, Ephesians says, man, awake, O oh sleeper. Lift your eyes to Jesus. First, 2 Corinthians 13, or 3.18 is one of the, I, I quote it all the time. That we with unveiled face, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So the the invitation is to look at Jesus. Stop being distracted. Stop worrying about your next thing. Stop tolerating this sermon. Stop tolerating church. Stop tolerating what he's saying to you. And look at Jesus. That'll sort it out. That'll sort it out. Look at Jesus. Let's do that. Let's pray. God, help us. We need it in ways that we don't even know how to articulate. We need it. But we ask that you would give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, and let us not lift our souls to another. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.